0: Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman.
1: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Ellen Trackman, and here with Jennifer White.
2: Yay! It's me. I'm here
1: <laughs> again to talk about all things assisted reproductive technology, and we're now on episode 100 plus, which is really exciting. So it's crazy, we, but we still have lots of great intro topics, um, and this one's coming in around the holidays. Jen, what is one yes. of your favorite holiday traditions? Um, I,
2: I have to say, uh, it might be work related. Since <laughs> this year COVID has like busted so many things, right? It used to be a family holiday tradition was we all traveled together for Christmas,
1: right? Mm. Which was awesome. Those were the days. Those yes.
2: were the halcyon days. Uh, <laughs> it is not happening this year, but, uh, we do run a sperm on
1: the shelf contest. Which I think is
2: hysterical. And just so. to
1: uh, explain so many families do Elf on the Shelf with a, a mischievous elf that moves around and does crazy yes. things, right? Is that? Yes. So based on Elf on the Shelf, Yeah, We did a sperm
2: on the shelf. Yeah, exactly. So I think a couple years ago, was it three, four years ago, we started sending out sperms to people who wanted them and they take pictures and put them in our contest group. So anyone can join the contest group. You don't have to actually participate, but you can go to the sperm on the shelf contest group on Facebook, I think is what it's called. And just join and go look at the pictures and crazy antics that people put in there. I think by the time this comes out, this year's contest will have almost ended. But, there's always but next year, there's always next year. And if you send us a message, we would be happy to add people to the mailing list for
1: next year, which means we mail you sperm. But yes. not just sperm, because it's holiday sperm. Which I one of my favorite parts is it changes every year. So I think yes. the first year was like little red Santa hats. Santa hats. Yeah. And then top hats, and um, then earmuffs? Ear, earmuffs. Oh, was it earmuffs
2: last year? Yeah, we did top top hats, earmuffs, and then this year, of course, in COVID <laughs> keeping, uh, the sperm are all wearing masks,
1: face masks. Yes, yes. <laughs> so also, if you have great ideas about what should be next year, I think like um, antlers. I don't know. We're we're still working mm-hmm. on it, but yeah, um, we'll definitely to, thing, share so. your ideas there. Um, yes (laughs) anyway great holiday tradition but moving on to what you're here for which is our great interview with Dr. Ringler who shares fantastic stories as well as his expertise with us welcome Dr. Guy Ringler to the show thank you for joining us on our podcast
0: Well, thank you for inviting me happy to be here
1: So we're really excited to interview you, especially to hear your story and so much of a historical perspective about assisted reproductive technology and IVF. And I thought a good place to start was to hear a bit about your background and what led you to this field.
0: Okay, happy to share. Um, I grew up in Michigan. Um, My dad was a barber. My mother actually drove a school bus and so we grew up in suburban Detroit, and uh, I have three sisters. I was the only boy, so I had a had where. A great,
1: where were you in line?
0: I was number three or four. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I was a little spoiled. because I was the only boy, so <laughs> <laughs> I got to s- sit in the front seat of the car. The three girls in the back it was a very oh wow. What? Yeah. That's not fair. <laughs> <All the> inequality. Wait <laughs> <Give me laughs> a second.
1: <laughs> Don't like that. No. Uh,
0: mm. uh, but uh, I grew up surrounded, surrounded by women. I have three amazing sisters. So it was great training for a future gynecologist, right?
2: Yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and um, no, I just, uh, it was great. And I uh, went to college, University of Michigan. I went to medical school in Detroit, Wayne State University. And, you know, I was always interested in science and I always liked people. So medicine made, made the, the most sense to me. And in medical school, I should say before medical school, I wanted to become a pediatrician because I I always liked kids. I could relate well with kids. And so it just felt natural. So in medical school, I
1: I think they should test pediatricians or um, future pediatricians by having them be in a room with a screaming child running from a needle. And then maybe everyone (laughs) would change their mind. (laughs) Well, No, anyway, So that did not happen to you. That's not what changed your mind.
0: Well, in the third year of medical school, you do rotations in each specialty. So I did my P's rotation and you're in pediatrics, you're assigned to different age groups. So I was assigned to newborns to two years old and, you know, I liked it, but I couldn't talk to my patient directly. And so, and then I did OB and I loved obstetrics. There's there's nothing Mm -hmm. like delivering a baby. It's just Mm -hmm. an amazing experience. I think- I think all gynecologists go into the specialty because they love obstetrics. Um, there's just something special about being there and uh, helping bring yeah. your life into the world. Mm-hmm. So, so that made my decision. And I did my OBGYN residency at the University of Chicago. It's a great experience. Being on the south side of Chicago, we saw a lot of high risk patients. And when you're in medical training, you want to see every possible complication. Um, so you have that um, stored in your repertoire for in the future when you see complications. So yeah. I, lo- I love my high-risk OB rotations. And so I thought, yeah, I want to go into high-risk obstetrics because it's sort of a combination of OB and internal medicine. So it just adds a, a little ac- academic challenge that I enjoyed. Um, and just to
1: give more color, what kind of cases, what, what are you working on in that field that would be familiar to, to people not in medicine?
0: Well, in high-risk obstetrics, of, of you see pregnant patients with complications like pregnancy and diabetes, pregnancy and hypertension. Um, we had a very young inner-city population, so we would see a lot mm-hmm. of preeclampsia, which you probably have heard of, which is where you develop high Blood pressure in pregnancy, and you start losing protein in your urine. Um, so, I, th- you know, see, so because we were in this inner city patient population, you see a lot of complications of pregnancy, and which was interesting. But I realized after a while that even pregnancies that were very immaculately controlled, everything's going perfect, disasters can just sort of happen, problems arise. Um, So it was, um, to me, it felt a little bit like emergency room medicine. You were responding to problems, crises all the time. And, um, at that time, um, IBF was a new worldwide phenomenon. Um, so infertility, um, was about to be changed forever. Um, and so I thought, gee, that's pretty interesting. Um, and one of the founders of in vitro fertilization as a clinical treatment for infertility uh, was, was Dr. Richard Mars from University of Southern California. So mm-hmm. I'll always remember he was coming to Chicago to give a lecture, and all the faculty were excited because he really helped produce um, some of the world's first IVF babies. And he's yeah. my partner today. I, I've, I've been working with him for the last 30 years in Los That's Angeles. That's amazing. So.
1: And how did that come to be that you're like, that's interesting, doctor. I would like to join with you.
0: Uh, Well, I, you know, so then I decided I wanted to go into infertility because it was new and exciting and um, evolving as a clinical science. Um, So I did, to to go into infertility, you have to do a fellowship training. So it's an additional three years of training after your OBGYN training. So I did my infertility training at, University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, which was has always been one of the top training programs for infertility. Um, and we had senior faculty at, the, at Penn uh, that were master surgeons because before IVF was available everywhere, um, infertility specialists would do a lot of surgery. So mm. we would do really microsurgery, almost like plastic surgery on floping tubes and ovaries yeah. to restore anatomy, to fix some of the common problems that cause infertility, we would treat them surgically. So, yeah. you know, infertility specialists who trained 30 years ago all received extensive surgical training because that was one of the main treatments for many um, um, other causes of infertility.
1: And I'm curious, how has that evolved? Do you still do many procedures like that, or is it mostly IVF now?
0: No, oh, that's a great question. Now IVF has become so successful that it's really bypassed all of these surgical procedures. So now, rather than surgically correcting these problems, we just bypass it by doing IVF. Interesting. So, so all that surgical training, you know, we don't <laughs> out do the window much. But it was fascinating. I, I, I loved to operate, so it was always good. But you know, IVF um, has become so successful um, that it, it's easier for patients. They don't have to undergo a, a four-hour surgery with their abdomen yeah. being cut open. So there's many, many benefits. Um,
1: I can only imagine.
0: And so then when I graduated from the University of Pennsylvania, I, I interviewed mostly at academic programs around the country, interviewed at Harvard, Stanford. I was offered a job at the University of Michigan, where I'm from. And I was about to sign a contract with the University of Michigan to become faculty there. And I was sort of dragging my feet because I grew up in Michigan. And after living in Chicago and Philadelphia, I wasn't sure if I was ready to go home yet, (laughs) even though it was an interesting job opportunity. So one day, I'm, you know, contemplating this i got a call from the office of dr richard mars um would i come out to interview and i had applied and he,
1: and he was out in california still he
0: was in way. la yeah, yeah i had applied for the jobs you know six months prior just out of, you know what the heck let's, let's apply and so i got the call the next week i was on a plane the same day i interviewed i was offered a job Wow! And so. what
1: time of year was it? Was it winter? I feel like that could play into a decision
0: like that. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, I'm trying to think now. Um, it was probably, probably wasn't winter, I'm sure. What mm-hmm. was sort of funny, on for the interview, he, he was very busy at that time. Even though he was doing IVF, he still did a lot of s- surgery because he was a trained microsurgeon as well. So part of my interview, he was so busy, was to scrub in, with him while he was doing oh. surgery.
2: Oh, wow. Uh,
0: okay. So that way he would have more time to talk with me. And, you know, we're he's doing surgery and, you know, he hands me an instrument and said, why don't you go ahead and do this? And Wow. You know, little did I know afterwards that was part of the interview.
1: Right. That's <laughs> an intense interview.
0: To see if I had good hands, to see if I could operate. And, you know. And you I, passed. Thankfully, for all my surgical training, I passed. So yeah. yeah, so I've been with Richard uh uh for 30 years now in Los Angeles practicing wow. infertility. We have a great practice, you know, because of his fame, we've always had this international, you know, draw from patients from around the world. Mm-hmm. At, that, at that point you know, when I first started, there were a six-month waiting lists to, to see Richard Mars, and patients would come in around the world because there were only a few IVF programs in the world. It was still new, um, so it's interesting to, to to see now that every major city, you know, has multiple programs, even small cities. So there's m- much greater access to fertility treatment, um, which is which is great for patients who need it
1: mm-hmm that is that is great I feel like you must have seen so much evolution so much change since working with the person who started it can you tell us more about the differences between early days and now in terms of success rates and the kind of patients you're seeing um, and those elements sure
0: um, in in the beginning um, success rates were a fraction you know they were 25 you know, uh, 25% of what they are now. Uh, And so patients would have to do many more cycles. So today patients get pregnant, usually within the first one, two, maybe three cycles. Then they would do six cycles of IVF. because With more
2: embryos too at the time, I bet. (laughs)
0: Yes, because we couldn't test the embryos. So we would put that multiple embryos to increase the chance of one making it. Uh, wow. Today,
1: not to not to push a controversy, but the Octomom case when that happened, what were your thoughts as a doctor in in the field?
0: Well, at that time, we all we already had some guidelines on the number of embryos to practice, and it was without that was outside the guidelines. So that was really not you know good medicine, you know, because there's risk, you know. All fertility doctors are trained. Obstetricians, so trained obstetricians know the risk of multiple fetal pregnancy. So you want to you want to do no harm to your patient, right? You know, you want to help them get pregnant, but you want to minimize risk to them. Um, so pregnancy rates have increased significantly, meaning patients don't have to do as many cycles today. Most of the time, we do a single embryo transfer rather than transferring two, three, four. Embryos to minimize the chance of twins. Uh, Just because twins are a high-risk pregnancy, um, it's always safest for babies to be born one at a time. Um, I was contacted when I was in, in the first four or five years of practice. I was contacted by a clinical psychologist in Santa Monica. We had an office in Santa Monica at the time. Um, about a gay couple from Santa Monica who wanted to have a baby using assisted reproduction. By, which was by,
1: unheard, which is completely standard <laughs> now.
0: No. <laughs> now, But it was really unheard of then. Yeah. And uh, I talked to first to talk to my partners and said, what do you think? And they said, well, let's get more details. And, mm-hmm. uh, it's funny. I called one of my mentors at the University of Pennsylvania, and I said, "What do you think? You know, can I do this? You know, will I get blackballed from the medical community?" Um, and he thought about it and said, "Let, let me get back to you tomorrow." Yeah. <laughs> so wow. he had to contemplate it, and he took got back to me, and he said, "Help your patients. You know, wow. it will be fine." And as a gay man um i was very proud to help them fulfill their dreams and it was it was very sweet because they wanted their baby to be an expression of their love for each other so their plan was to use the sperm of one of the guys and the sister's eggs of his partner and that way it would be a genetic mix of the two of them and an expression of their love and it was so beautiful and um so wonderful. I'm uh, all on board. You know, have your sister come see me. How old is your sister? Oh, she's 41. And I was, Oh, you know, oh like,
1: no. You know, <laughs>
0: <laughs> As we all know, age
1: Pheriatric. is, yeah, <laughs> eight, um, know, I'm 41. By the way,
0: <laughs> factors affecting success rates. I said, you know, I don't know. It might be difficult, but they were so committed to their plan. And, she had a normal history. She was just 41. So we did IVF and she had a good response. You know, a, a dozen eggs. It wasn't a huge number. Um, we transferred. Okay. Oh, so um, there's. Oh, I forgot the surrogate part. The surrogate is their next door neighbor. Okay. This oh, wow. Is, this is a very homeschool project. There were surrogacy agencies at the time, but I. They were just beginning to um, treat gay couples, and so it wasn't widely known or available. So we are going to transfer into their surrogate. The surrogate had a normal history. She went through psychological testing, all fine. We transferred one embryo into the surrogate, and she got pregnant the first time. And they were successful. So they followed their dream of having a baby using – combination of their genetics, and they were successful for first time, which, was, which was fantastic. And Did you
1: know <laughs> of other doctors that were treating gay couples, or as far as you knew, like you could have been the first? Where Kind of where yeah. were you on that spectrum?
0: Well, I knew of um, a doctor in San Diego that was also doing it. Um, mm-hmm. I heard later that there was someone in Boston that was beginning to help gay couples. So it was in the beginning. I, I wasn't yeah. but... It was in the early, the early ages. And then I was contacted. And your
1: fear of being blackballed, did you, did you get any of that?
0: Um, Personally, no, no. But I was just aware from conferences, people felt that we shouldn't be helping LGBT um, individuals um, with fertility treatment. You know, there was this feeling at the time that we had limited fertility resources they should go to um, the heterosexual population. So there, there was, um, on, you know, hidden discrimination there, definitely. And yeah. it's incredible when you think of the progress we've made today. Um, today, uh, gay men and women wanting to have children, um, everyone is opening their doors um, to help them, Which so they, there's much greater access. In the very beginning of gay family building, um, Patients would come from around the world because no one was offering it, just like the early stages of IVF. But today, uh, there's many programs, so they have much greater access and more information is available. I'm on the board of a nonprofit named Men Having Babies, and Mm -hmm. one of its functions is to to provide resources um, to men about how they can have a family.
1: Yeah, that's, that's excellent. Um, and one of our, for listeners, we do have a podcast episode where we have one of the um, directors come on and talk a lot about that organization as well. So lots of good episodes to listen to. Um, and can I ask, were you out at that time? Was that part of um, treating other, t- treating those in the LGBTQ community?
0: You know, I was out to, you know, um, family and, and close friends um, professionally. I, wasn't out because I was afraid of, you know, hurting my career. Um, I remember the first year I moved to Los Angeles and I had met some other um, gay physicians and someone warned me, you know, don't be out because you could lose your job. There were, you know, people who had been terminated as anesthesiologists of major medical centers when their chiefs found out that they were gay. So it was still... Oh. You know, sort of dark ages back then. You had to be very careful. And after putting so many years of education and training into building your career, you know, right. you didn't want to damage it. So it's, yeah. it was, it was okay. a slow slow progression, but part of it involved, you know, helping, you know, gay patients, you know, fulfill their dreams.
1: Absolutely. Uh, thank you for doing that. that is, that's absolutely amazing. On that line of discrimination, are you seeing a lot of anxiety and concern from your LGBTQ patients, especially recently with kind of the Supreme Court justices saying Obergefell may have been wrongly decided, according to to some of them? Has that created any concerns?
0: I mean, I've only I've seen it on social media. I haven't seen it mm-hmm. personally with patients. You know, I think we've made too much progress to go backwards, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, back,
1: that's what we all hope back. for. <laughs> that's what we going, all
2: hope.
0: So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't. It doesn't seem like a reality, right? So, no, yeah. no. I mean, my goal, even when I started, and today, was that. Um, sorry, I get a little choked up. Actually, for oh. young gay young gay men who are dealing with their sexuality and having struggling with it it was it used to be so hard because there were no resources there was no nothing and today young gay men have you know, it's, it's okay to be gay and it's okay yeah. you know, there's a lot of resources and gay, young gay men know they can get married they can have families right. you know it never used to be like that gay Thanks bars like you. gay bars were down dark alleys in inner cities um, so it's it's all good, all positive.
1: No, and thanks to, to people like you who helped make that change and to offer services. But that is certainly something we've heard repeatedly. I another podcast we did, one with David Ladd, um, who's a very prominent attorney and starred, you know, above the law. Um, he tells the story that, you know, him and his partner and his husband grew up in a time where they didn't think they would be able to get married. They didn't think they'd have a chance to have children, like all that dream of kind of simple things were not believed to be an option so it is amazing to see that we we've come so far
0: yeah and it's there it's available in multiple different areas of course not every country you know and you know we still see patients from around the world because you know the united states is the safest place for surrogacy especially and, and
2: that's a really interesting thought like what barriers do you see internationally
0: well, in most, most countries, um, surrogacy is illegal um, and especially gay surrogacy. Um, and so it's California, um, you know, surrogacy in the United States is governed by state law. So there, today there are many surrogacy friendly states. California has always been very, has been always considered one of the safest places for surrogacy because the laws here are very protective of the rights of the intended parents. Um, so, um, but we work with multiple different surrogacy agencies and surrogacy agencies know which states are friendly, which are not. And so there's, there's many more options, of course, beyond besides California today, um, for people who need surrogacy.
1: I would love to hear more about other procedures that have changed in advance, especially helping in the LGBTQ community. I know reciprocal IVF for one has become more common. Have you seen, have you been performing a lot of reciprocal IVF and do you see other procedures growing in popularity or use?
0: Yeah, I know we've we've always done a reciprocal IVF. I don't know if I've seen it grown. So,
1: and do you uh, want to oh. give an explanation for those sure. who, that yeah, might be for, a new term for them
0: <laughs> for lesbian couples? Um, um, they because they each have ovaries and a uterus, they can decide who will carry, who will supply the eggs, and who will carry the pregnancy. Um, and reciprocal IVF refers to creating the embryos with the, with the eggs from one woman and transferring the embryos into her partner um, who will carry the pregnancy. Um, and, you know, within, there's, there's lots of different variations. Um, I see more and more where both women want to create embryos so they have a biological connection. So they will both do IVF, freeze the embryos, and then um, they will decide which one will carry the pregnancy. Um, um, for some women um, for many women of course they want to carry pregnancy um, they want to experience giving birth um, I see some women who feel that being becoming pregnant is just not part of their identity their body image and they have no need to experience that and they will usually let their partner carry the pregnancy so reciprocal IVF um, provides options.
1: No, no, thank you. Um, and we feel like clinics vary in many different ways. We'd love to hear more about your clinic. And I know it has special ways that it, it works with patients that can be different from other clinics.
0: Well, we've always um, prided ourselves on providing very personalized care. Um, so um, we being myself and my partners, we monitor All of our patients ourselves, so we don't have ultrasound technicians. Each each doctor sees his or her own patients for every examination and every procedure. Um, In IVF, for, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, we do serial ultrasounds to monitor the development of the eggs and the ovaries by measuring follicles and. Those measurements that we take are very important in determining the timing of egg retrieval. And the timing of egg retrieval is important because if you remove them too early, the eggs are immature, they won't fertilize. If you remove them too late, you can decrease the quality and the, the pregnancy potential. So this is where the art comes in of IVF. It can't follow a standard cookbook on everyone. You have to make decisions according to the data collected. And by collecting that data yourselves, you have better instincts on how to make the best decision for that individual. So, um, and in addition, it gives the patient much more time to get their questions answered because they're seeing their physician, you know, on regular on a regular basis. So it's really more personalized care. It's more attentive care, um, and it all adds up to better success rates we believe.
1: That's great. Well, I tell you we love stories. Do you have any favorite success stories with patients that you would love to share?
0: Um I I have a very unusual story that We love unusual stories too. <laughs> unusual is good too. <laughs> Please. I think it's very beautiful. I hope hopefully you will feel the same way. So this was many, many years ago. I I treated a couple. They had been trying for about a year um, and needed needed a a basic infertility workup. And the infertility workup revealed that the husband had no sperm. And additional testing revealed that that he had no ability to make sperm, so it was not possible. Everything else on, on his wife checked out normal. And so we talked about the possibility of using donor sperm and gave them all the information. They were going to think about it. And she came back to me about four months later um, with a positive pregnancy test. And, you know, I examined her and she was definitely pregnant. And I said, this is really amazing, amazing. Um, Do you know, I'm surprised that, that this was, this happened and she she said, "Well, I I have a secret to share." She said, "I have a twin sister, um, and yeah, you know, my husband, her husband are very close. They they felt bad at our situation, so we planned a special dinner one evening around the middle of my cycle. And after dinner, my husband, and my sister went upstairs, um, and that was their gift. That was." their gift to us.
1: Wow. 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 That is unusual. (laughs) Yes. I tell you, it was like
0: my patient and her husband went upstairs, but so it was a very, it's a a beautiful ending. It was how
2: this family
0: dealt with their infertility. um, Mm -hmm. And with a very happy ending. So it was a very, very unusual, um, but then, I mean, there's, there's lots of funny stories. Things, Funny things happen every day in the practice. Um, when we do ultrasound examinations, we have ultrasound gel. I forget this. One day, both myself and my patient ended up laughing aloud. I was shaking, trying to get the ultrasound gel onto the vaginal probe, and was shaking it mm-hmm. upside down like a ketchup bottle where the ketchup won't come up. And all yeah. of a sudden, a big squirt came up, and she yelled, Ouch. And I looked up and she had a big glob of it on her eyeglasses.
2: Oh no. Oh, wow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and she had a great sense of humor. And uh, um, oh. uh, several years ago I had the good fortune of presenting an award to Sir Elton John from the American oh, wow. Fertility.
1: Wow. That is Amer- impressive.
0: Yeah, by the American Fertility Association because I was on the board. It was our annual benefit. And we were We honored people who shared their journey, shared their stories with the media, and Elton and David shared their surrogacy story with the world through a big Us Magazine article. So we honored him, and in his acceptance speech, he said, you know, I never thought my wildest dreams as a 64-year-old man, I would be getting an award for fertility. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> it, was just, it was hysterical um wow, but, that is hilarious so. and well, even that... even back then i i think their boys must be five or six now um mm. and and so five or six years ago the idea of gay men having babies through surrogacy was just huge news um and today i mean maybe because what I do and where I live. It just seems so common that everyone knows this now, but Mm -hmm. five or six years ago, it was, it was new.
1: Yeah. Well, we feel absolutely honored that you were able to take the time out of your busy schedule, changing lives, helping people create families to share some of um, your experiences, talking to Elton John and changing the world. So we just really want to thank you for, for coming on and joining us.
0: Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, Anytime. Um, Thank you for what you do to help spreading the word about family building through surrogacy. Um, It's all about um, sharing stories so people can learn, be inspired, and follow their dreams, fulfill their lives, right?
1: Inspirational words. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Ringler, both for sharing your time and taking so good care of your patients, but also for being willing to um, take care of patients when others weren't necessarily willing to. To, to change the course of history and to help families, right. it's incredible. Groundbreaking,
2: yeah, exactly. Groundbreaking. You know, just, just really stepping up there, which is incredible. So. Um, and speaking of incredible, you know, there's, there's always our listeners who give us great suggestions and we want to invite you always to continue to send us messages or give us a call and leave us a new voicemail. Uh, our number is 303-997-1903. And of course, you know, it, it wouldn't be another Wednesday if we didn't remind people to uh, go to iTunes and leave us a review or, or give us those number of stars that you feel are appropriate. <laughs> um as well five is good five five is great five is fantastic it's out of five anyone was curious I right it's like the other day when you asked me this question about if what I thought your score was and I thought it was out of hundred and then I totally <laughs> insulted you yes so nice. <laughs> um yeah no but uh if you also are inclined make sure you go to our website you.com and go check out merchandise because we have great some holiday fun gifts, things definitely. exactly exactly mm-hmm. we're getting right on the deadline for guess what's Jen order get, things, guess what right? Jen's
1: getting her getting for me <laughs> don't tell her
2: <laughs> right that's okay i'm excited All
1: sperm merch right
2: yes yay um but as always a huge thank you to all of you who listen and to our team that uh, make us sound incredible to tyler to amanda and of course to chris at workerbird studios so thank you and we'll talk to everybody again next week
1: thanks